Welcome to the Core Women Podcast. My name is Dr. Summer Watson. I'm a doctor of psychology, podcaster, published author, coach, producer of documentary empowerment films, and empowerment seminars. This podcast is a special place for the hearts and souls of women. It is a place where women share their journeys, strength, resiliency, strategy, and passions. Today on the show, I'd like to welcome Melody Stanford Martin, who is a social ethicist and communications expert, author of Brave Talk, Building Resilient Relationships in the Face of Conflict, founder of Brave Talk Project, founder and CEO of Cambridge Creative Group, and a regular contributor to Psychology Today. Melody's work focuses on rhetorical innovation, courageous community engagement, and out-of-the-box thinking to solve social problems. We have so much to talk about, so let's dive right into this, Melody, and welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Summer. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So Melody, before we jump right into the professional journey, can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey, where you grew up, your interests, and how you developed some of those interests? (laughs) Well, because you asked. Yeah, so I grew up in the central coast of California, which I think you're also a California girl. I am. Yes. Central coast of California, born into a minister's family of Pentecostal tradition. I was uh, basically raised in the church five, six days a week. A lot of fun there. Um, I have three sisters and I went to school in Chicago area when I went to college. So in the journey between college and I'm diving into the heavy stuff. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. If you saw the title of this talk, you saw conflict somewhere. And you'll know we're in for an intense talk, but listen, it doesn't have to all all be a drag. Okay. So we can have some fun too. In the process of going from college to later starting my graduate work in theology and ethics, several years later, I started shifting drastically in my religious and political views. And that caused immeasurable pain in my family. Mm. And it caused a lot of strain in my relationships with the people I love most in the world. And my family are wonderful people, but we disagree fundamentally about some core things. And this journey probably would have been a different story if my family wasn't so wonderful, if they weren't so loving, if they weren't so well-meaning, if they, if they didn't love so hard. The reason it was so difficult for both of us is because we both care deeply about each other, right? Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes those are the hardest situations to navigate. It's, it's so much easier to write off a nasty person that you don't want anything to do with. It's much more heartbreaking and difficult to stay close to people across differences when you love them. So that was the beginning of this struggle. And I can go into more detail about that mm-hmm. um, in a little bit. We'll be talking about my book soon. Right. So this yeah. is turn, this journey, this, this story that is so common to so many of us has turned into a book. It is also, my writing is also informed by my graduate work in conflict transformation and ethics, a little bit less in theology, but still in that same sort of formation. So if you pick up my book by chance, you will notice the dedication is to my mother because that relationship singularly has been one of the most difficult for both of us to navigate. Mm. And I started noticing that where years and years ago, when we first started having these head-to-head confrontations, we would only be able to talk for a few minutes without one of us crying and storming out. It's not funny. I'm laughing because it was, it's a painful, uncomfortable memory for me. 
as we have grown together and committed to working on this together and learned boundaries and learned to not control each other and to try to educate each other and learn to sit in the utter discomfort and ungracefulness of butting heads all the time and never being able to resolve that impasse, we have grown in our skills and our ability to sit with that discomfort and not run away screaming. We have grown in our showing respect to each other, even if we can't respect each other's ideas. We've grown in our ability to say hard things and be articulate and passionate without wounding each other, right? Mm -hmm. We've grown in our ability to tell hard truth. And I started studying the ways that we've done that and the skills that we've had to develop in order to get to this place where we can now talk for two hours without anyone crying about politics and religion, right? Mm. It's still hard. It's still uncomfortable, but we've grown. And, and that was the inspiration for the book. Wow. If I have seen myself do this in my personal life, then maybe it's possible to teach these skills to other people. And that's what the book became. And the book has been, again, buttressed by the graduate work that I did in conflict studies. However, I have to say that I, I asked my professors often, what do we do in impasse? What do you do when you can't resolve it? Because we're never going to agree. And I, and I never got answers to that in grad school. Really? ever because there's not a lot of work done on impasse. So I thought, Hey, why don't I write a book for a general, the general public that's all around the theme of impasse. And what do you do in the most difficult conflicts? How do you, how do you regulate those emotions? How do you deal with fear? How do you be articulate, but not controlling or domineering? Right. right. So, and it's hard, it's really hard. And there's a lot of cultural things that go into it. There's a lot of uh, psychological things that go into it, but I am, I have grown deeply in my passion for this work, because the more I work with, with clients, with, with audiences, with people that I, that I, you know, train, I have seen remarkable growth and hope in place of hopelessness. And that gives me fuel for the journey. Right. Oh my goodness. What an incredible explanation to that question and a journey and so much growth. I'm going to take a step back here though, because I did ask about your interests because this is such a strong, deep, concentrated topic, conflict, talking about that all the time. How do you get outside of that just to enjoy and just to release for yourself? Yes. So this isn't my whole personality. <laughs> I am, I'm an avid musician. I perform, I sing jazz. I have a rock band. Well, when it's not pandemic time, have a rock band. I love to paint. I do watercolor and acrylic and oil. I am an avid gardener. I'm always outside digging in the dirt. I am a kind of a restless soul. I get bored very easily. It's my biggest fear. So I wouldn't say I'm a highly accomplished person, but I am a, an endlessly bored person that's always trying to find little things to dabble in. So Ooh. yes, I would, I would classify myself as a uh, a, a Jill of all trades, but master of none for sure. I, I can't <laughs> present you with a Rembrandt that I've done, but uh, you know, I do love to dapple. Right. Okay. Yeah. And maybe later we'll talk about that boredom, where that comes from. So, <laughs> oh no, oh no, you're a therapist. I don't, <laughs> we're going to open up a can of worms here. <laughs> That's another show. That's another show. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, you've kind of answered my second question, which was about talk about some of your passions and how those developed over time. Now you, you have, so can you talk about, let's get to this because I think there needs to be some clarity here for, for the listeners. 
Um, can you talk about what a social ethicist is? Yes. And I'd love for you to help me answer this question because I know you've studied philosophy. Uh, well, psychology, <laughs> some philosophy. So so, cool. Psychology, some philosophy. Yes, that's yeah. right. Um, so ethics, we know the word, but it's kind of a weird concept for a lot of us to grasp. Even me, I've done work at a graduate level on ethics. Your, your face, I know you're listening, all of you out there, but Summer's face right now is scrunched up in kind of a grimace. No, <laughs> ethics. And it's not. I'm just like, uh, it's really <laughs> like what's she going to say next? I'm so excited. It sounds like such a bummer, ethics, right? It's, so it's, if you could say it's the academic study of making moral choices, you could say, perhaps, right? And there's different approaches. Some people are consequentialists, some people are virtue ethics, some people are ethicists, some people are um, uh, utilitarian. You might've heard all these words floating around. Don't worry about all that right now. Let's let's just focus on what social ethics is. Okay, so if ethics is making, is is moral choices, social ethics is that same kind of idea, that that deep and complicated conversation around what is a moral choice. Apply that to relationships. How do we relate to each other morally? How do we have right relationships, healthy relationships? And using a systems lens, an intersectional lens, we can ask, how do we build structures and institutions and policies that facilitate right relationship? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So going back to the question, what is a social ethicist? Again, moral principles, principles, right? And that understanding of the, your social principles. So what makes something right, so to speak, right for one person, wrong for another, right for one person, you know, right for all? How do you determine that? How do you define that? Oh my goodness. How long, how much time you got? <laughs> 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 yeah. So I'm really interested in the applied aspect of this, right? How this works out in the world as a social ethicist. And again, you know, I, someone once asked me what kind of jobs are there out there for social ethicists? Well, it's more something you are in the way that you approach the world. I believe that we can all be social ethicists, right? We need social people to think about how we're relating to each other in healthy ways, how we're building healthy systems of exchange in all aspects of life. We need social ethicists in business. We need social ethicists in healthcare, in education, in all realms of life, right? We can all do this. Social ethicists are, are people who ask those bigger questions. Is this the most just way to structure the world? Is the, this the healthiest way of relating to each other, right? So I, I hope that this term becomes popular. Most of the people I talk to don't really know what it is. It's a pretty obscure like, realm of academia, but I, I, like to, I like to think of myself as Robin Hood a little bit, taking the spoils of academia and bringing them to the general public because it is kind of a an elitist thing that only some of us have the time and the resources to go to school, you know, for 10 years at a graduate level. That's, it's not very equitable, right? Not everybody has that luxury. So I don't think that that knowledge should stay cordoned off behind an academic paywall locked in the ivory tower. I'm passionate about getting it out there. And actually, if anyone listening, if you have academic knowledge that's been kind of shut off from the world, you know, maybe think more about how you can bring that forward to the world and, and, make a contribution to the general public because there's so much wonderful knowledge in, in academia that really doesn't trickle out very well to culture, to the populace. Right. I love what you said there. I think there is an elitist concept in regards to language. 
And that's why I love the simplicity of being able to break this down. Because when I look at psychology, physics, philosophy, all these different areas of study, have you ever thought about that being somewhat elitist in regards to solely language? Because there are people who know that language and maybe we're not sharing that language enough with others to know what that is or what that means. So I love breaking things down where the message, the core message is really simple. So people can go, ah, I get it. I get it. I get it. And that's exactly why I wanted to ask you, explain this to me. In Thank you for asking. You know, just yeah. because I think more people need to know, and it is such an important concept. So let's break it down so that we simply know what it is and how, 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 how to apply some of the aspects of being a social ethicist. Absolutely. So what would you say is one of the biggest social challenges that you have personally confronted and how did you deal with it? One of the biggest social challenges. Mm -hmm. After this past summer, a lot of us became acutely aware of how much we thought we knew about issues like racism. But a lot of us realized how, how much we still needed to grow, even though we thought we were socially aware. And I embarked on this in this process with a colleague of mine named Tyshell Graham to design an anti-racism course. And that has been a really amazing process for me, a process of growth and for the people that we've been working with to increase education and awareness and perspective shifting for anti-racist work. So as far as social problems are concerned, you know, it, it's, it's difficult because we have a lot of them in our society. We have a lot of social problems and sometimes it's hard to isolate just one because they're all interconnected, right? Mm -hmm. You really can't talk about something like racism or sexism without talking about economic injustice right. or environmental justice. Mm -hmm. It's all linked together, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I think that to answer your question, addressing social problems has to be an ongoing education process for us nice. before we attempt to, to change the world. And I, th and I think for some people that can be a little bit paralyzing, like I have to know all the things before I can take action. Right. But there are resources out there if we, if we are willing to listen. And a lot of activists have been using social media in really incredible ways to create these educational resources. So listening to voices that you normally maybe wouldn't listen to, hearing someone out, hearing their perspective, even if you don't completely agree with them, you might learn something. And so this has become really the crux of what I've, I am passionate about in my work is the role of healthy disagreement and, the, and what it does for us, what it does for us as a people, as a society, in our relationships, in our communities. Sometimes it's easy to shut the door on disagreement because we want everything to make sense. We want everything to line up. We want everyone to cheer and hoop and holler for us. And if someone brings up a, you know, a decent argument, like, hey, ha have you thought about this some other way? Have you thought about this thing that you're not taking into account? It's very easy to shut the door and say, get out of here, you jerk, right? Mm -hmm. Get out of here, you fill in the blank label. Right. I see, you know, from my side of the, of the fence that has become the polarization of the American public. I see a lot of people on my side and my team acting in this kind of brutal, cruel, shut downy 
kind of way Mm -hmm. toward anyone who disagrees. Mm -hmm. I hope if I can get one message out into the world that that healthy disagreement is the lifeblood of a democracy. It's the lifeblood of a society. It's the lifeblood of healthy relationships that we need to be able to grapple with each other and wrestle ideas with each other. We need to be able to say, you know, I, I disagree with 80% of what you're saying, but that 20% is something I'm going to chew on. Thank you for bringing that to my attention, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of punishing each other cruelly. And I'm not saying that we have to be nice to everyone, (laughs) I certainly don't think we need to be nice to everyone, but there is something lost when we shut the door on disagreement and it caused, it has caused a lot of resentment, a lot of resentment. So that's something I'm working on in myself and that I encourage people to understand that our democracy is only as strong as we can disagree in healthy ways. And that's, that's written into the foundations of who we are as a country. And I hope we don't lose that in the desire to fix all our social problems. We need to consider these problems from multiple angles, right? That doesn't mean all viewpoints are valid, but it means that for the most part, when you are interacting with someone, unless you've determined this is a really toxic, unsafe person to interact with, right? And you need to draw really clear boundaries. Most of the time when you're interacting with someone who disagrees with you, you might learn something from them, even if you don't agree. And it's possible to hold those two things in paradox. You can both disagree and learn at the same time, right? Right. We don't have to shut the door on that. So, So for me, social problems, these social problems that we are facing as a country, all of the isms, you know, elitism, racism, classism, sexism, economic injustice, environmental issues, all of these things, healthcare, homelessness, food insecurity. I mean, it's just, it's kind of mind boggling to think about all the things that stack up and all of the people in our country who suffer on a regular basis because of these unnecessary broken systems that we have. There is no single person who can solve these things, not even the president of the United States. We all need to do it together. Right. Uh, we all need, we are all needed. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just studying people, human behavior, as you said, there are so many factors that play a role in this because we've been conditioned a certain way, culturally, age. I mean, there's so many things that contribute to why we think the way we do, modeling, all the stuff. And so- yes. One of the big things that I think is so important is being approachable, at least being open, open yeah. to hearing a different perspective, a different point of view. And I think many times what I've run into is people are shut down. They believe what they want to believe. And yet it's like, it doesn't allow for any growth because they're not as approachable as maybe you'd want them to be or you just can't say anything. So it's like, and I've run in even into professors who have been like that. And you're like, wow, you don't want to hear anything yeah. different than your own philosophy or your own vision. And so to me, that lack of being approachable has gotten in the way. And so I think the first step is, hey, just be approachable. You yeah. Know, simple as that sometimes. Yeah. And I get that people have strong opinions, right? Have your strong opinions. Absolutely. Believe it. And I I get the sense that some people feel like, like if they have to endure a difference of opinion, even hearing that out, then that's going to weaken how passionate they are about what they believe. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And I, and I will give a huge caveat to what I'm saying right now, that a lot of times the burden of this 
the burden of, of hearing someone out, the burden of, of being cooperative has fallen to people who have been the most marginalized in society. So my message to, to listening to other voices, to being open, to being open to healthy disagreement is actually speaking as a white American, specifically speaking to other white Americans, not to omit people of color or black, black indigenous or people of color, but to say that, that a lot of times the burden of solving social problems has fallen to the people who have experienced the most damage from those social problems. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing over and over and over again from my BIPOC friends who are activists is utter exhaustion and burnout and nearing hopelessness. And I think going back to the, you know, the Floyd riots we saw this summer, a lot of white Americans I've talked to say, I just don't understand what I was witnessing. Like, how can people be so mean? You're not witnessing meanness. You're witnessing grief. You're witnessing hopelessness. That's what that is. And for you to sit in your privileged position and say, oh, they should just be nice. You know, that's not fair to that lived experience. You're not trying to understand with your heart what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm asking fellow white people, and I know I don't, I don't mean to make this into a race thing, but I mean to make this into a thing where we're telling people who have had easy lives respectively, right? Because of privilege, easier lives, let's say maybe not easy, easier lives to take up the responsibility to help, right? to right. aid, to follow the leadership of people who are solving the social problems, who know what it's like to be at the brunt of those social problems mm. and can give a, a crystal clear way forward, right? right? I'm not asking people to be white saviors. <laughs> Certainly don't do that. I'm asking people to educate themselves and to speak up and stand out when, when they can, when the stakes are low because that effort is needed in this social change that we're seeking. Absolutely. Well, I think that's really great guidance. So thank you for that. You are the founder of Creative Talk Project and the CEO of Cambridge Creative Group. Can you talk about these two entities and projects? Sure. So Cambridge Creative Group is my graphic design and marketing company that I started several years ago. I work primarily with nonprofits doing um, outreach work, messaging, narrative marketing. We call it storytelling marketing, telling the story of who they are. And I love that work. I work with some wonderful clients, some of the, some of the most incredible nonprofits doing work around the world, you know, getting, getting supplies and baby cradles to mothers in South Asia to reduce maternal and infant mortality organizations working on child food insecurity here in the U.S., uh, trying to lobby Congress for better benefits, organizations that are training girls around the world about healthcare, how to, and creating uh, peer education training programs. I work with organizations who are helping formerly incarcerated young people start businesses and training in computer skills and, and software engineering. I mean, I get to work with some of the brightest minds who are doing incredible work in medical research and social research. And it's been an incredible experience to be able to facilitate and support those missions as they move forward. 
through, you know, things like websites and graphic design and, and helping to design reports and information design, designing infographics that people take to lobby to Congress. It's so exciting that, you know, the eyeballs have seen the thing, the pictures that I've created Absolutely. that tell a story, right, of data, that tell a story of, of the work that needs to be done, again, to solve social problems. That's been an awesome experience. Um, I found that, and this is going to make me sound greedy. <laughs> I found that that work was meaningful, but I also, it's a both end. I also wanted to make my own contribution to the world. Mm -hmm. And I thought of all the things that I've learned and all the things that I've studied, this, this area in conflict transformation in courageous dialogue and healthy disagreement, there's some work done on it in for practitioners, for like, for like educators and clergy and you know, people mm -hmm. who have graduate degrees, there's not a lot yet done for the general public. So I was really excited to bring a book to the world that was full of, full of, um, of charts and diagrams and silly stories, right? It pictures, it's kind of an extension of my creative work with Cambridge Creative Group in some ways yeah. that would help people move into these, this skill set that I've identified that's been very helpful for me and that's been helpful for others that I've worked with. So Brave Talk Project is that. That's mm -hmm. where my book is. That's where the classes and workshops I teach. That's where the anti-racist classes house for free. All of this is, these are free resources so far. That is also where uh, Basecamp lies. Basecamp is a conversation game that I've created. Mm. And I created it before I wrote the book. So this is really where the story starts in my, my journey, I suppose. I, I thought, I had this idea occur to me one day, wow, we really don't have any spaces to practice difficult conversations. Where, like, where do you learn that? <laughs> if you don't learn it in school, right. if you don't learn it in your family, if you don't learn it, like you said, through modeling, right. you, you learn it from television where everything's written in a writer's room and, and things can either resolve quickly or be way melodramatic. Like the example I use is you would, in, in real life, if you saw strangers yelling at each other in a coffee shop, it would be like, whoa, like you would like write home about it, right? Right. If you see that happen in a TV show, it you don't even flinch because it's television. It's not right. real, right? right? The conflict that we witness modeled on television is literally not real. And we can't, we absorb it even though we're, we shouldn't, right? Right. So I thought, hey, it would be really cool to have spaces where we could just practice this stuff. How do we do that? How do we do it safely? How do we provide that structure? And that turned into the idea for this conversation called Basecamp. And it's called Basecamp because they're, it's kind of set with an historic quest, quest where you're going up to the top of a mountain to have a mm -hmm. difficult conversation. And the mountain represents the issue that you disagree on, that you right. see from different sides. Wow. And your goal is to get to the top of that mountain and have that conversation without running away or fighting. Can you do it? It's a personal challenge. Mm -hmm. So Basecamp has developed and I started developing this game and I thought, wow, you need skill A, B, C, and D to be able to do, <laughs> be able to do right. this game. That became the book. Nice. Oh my gosh. I absolutely yeah. love that because it gives practical application to something that we should know, but we don't know or haven't learned in a way that we don't just separate and walk our separate ways where we continue to be together and grow together. We may not always align exactly, but at least if we could have that open dialogue to a certain degree where we could get to the top of that mountain, that's important. Yeah, really important. So again, your, your book is called Brave Talk, Building Resilient Relationships in the Face of Conflict. So you've given us an idea about this book. Is there anything else that you want to touch on regarding the book? Regarding the book. Yeah, so I can just kind of go through the major themes 
Sure. Uh, so I tell my story about impasse in my family and specifically, so the, the singular event that's, that lit the, the spark <laughs> that became this project was um, after my wedding to my partner, Corey, we took my family up to Maine on a quote unquote family moon, which was a terrible idea. I do not recommend this. <laughs> Like, well, we, we've been to Maine so many times. We'll just take my family, you know, uh, who'd never been to Maine. They're California people. They're like, ooh, lobster. So exotic, right? <laughs> so we get there and that first night around the fire, we all had a little bit too much, you know, leftover um, wedding wine. Enough, not, not sloshed, but enough to, you know, let the feelings flow. And we got into the most vicious fight we've ever been in as a family, you know? Wow. And it wasn't even meant to be vicious. We just disagreed so fundamentally and we hadn't seen each other for so long that it just erupted. And it, it, even years later, we're still talking about this particular fight because it was so hard for all of us to go through. Right. And I'm not placing blame on any one family member. I share the story to say that so many families go through this. And I think families have this special ability to wound each other because it's like, well, you're still going to be my family. I don't really care what I say to you. If it hurts, so suck it up, you know, Mm. or we avoid the elephant in the room and it just kind of eats away at our souls over time. (laughs) So families I found is where like kind of the deepest parts of this work lie. So, so the book starts with my personal experience. It goes into talking about impasse, which is an idea that a lot of people have never given a ton of thought to. A lot of people have never given a lot of thought to their relationship with conflict, their style of approaching conflict. Then I go into fear because I believe that fear is the beginning of all conflict. It's the taproot. It's the, it's the central portion of, of all conflicts that we experience. The fear of not being seen, the fear of not being believed, the fear of losing resources, the fear of losing voice, the fear of losing a relationship. That all is underneath every angry fight, every word unspoken. It's fear, right? So I go into fear and I use this analogy called a fear bunker, the place where we go when we're afraid and shut down. And and it exists partially, you know, as as a therapist, a psychologist, you know, this exists partially to protect us from further harm, right? And even, especially in the case of trauma, but that fear also isolates us Mm -hmm. and, 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 and shuts us down from learning new information. So how do we deal with it? What do we do? How do we get out of our fear bunker? How do we deal with the, how do we not put other people in their fear bunker and how do we create this? circumstances that allow people, other people to come out of their fear bunker. So you can actually meet and have a real, a real connection right. safely. Right. So from fear, I moved to, and I won't give a whole, whole chapter by chapter rundown of the book, but these are right. some of the crucial parts from fear. I moved to power because I really felt strongly about including a portion of the book dedicated to how power functions in conflict and how power dynamics can sway the outcome of conflict deeply right? Mm -hmm. And how a lot of times people with more social power get to set the terms and the rules and don't realize the consequences of their actions. Uh, And I'm very excited to announce I'm actually doing a TED talk on this exact subject in a a week or two. So very, very excited to be talking about domination and oppression and anti-oppression work. So I, and I was told by a few people, don't put that chapter in the book because it seems like it's like, doesn't have anything to do with it uh, with your topic. But then after everything that happened in the past year, those same people came back to me and said, now I understand. Now I understand why you put that in there because those power structures are so important. And those of us who have benefited from those power structures our whole lives are conditioned not to see how they operate. Yeah. I'm really surprised that they had suggested not putting that in the book. Um, that's really surprising because there is so much 
that goes on about power differential and how that can absolutely change the outcome of a situation. So yeah, my head can't right, even wrap around why that chapter wouldn't be in there. Yeah, I know. I, I think it's I think it's because it's unsettling to think about these things for the first time. You know, if you've oh, never had that kind of training, it's it's very right. like, ooh, like yeah. I don't want to think about that. that. You put it in there, you know. Thank you. I mean, I felt obligated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So after that, I I I pull back a little bit because those are all really heavy topics, right? We talk about the gift, what I call the gift of disagreement, the gift of healthy disagreement, and and what it means to really thank someone and see someone when they're taking the time to disagree with you. Well, it's so uncomfortable and it makes you angry sometimes, but they're also giving you a gift in so many ways. So I talk about that. I talk about asking the art of asking great questions. I talk about emotional regulation. I have a, an analogy that I've developed that I use in my work called the two rivers of feelings. Mm-hmm. I've had, I've had some psychologists tell me they appreciate the analogy. Mm-hmm. So there's the fast river, the fight or flight self-protection river, right? And that's feeding all the the short anger, the fear, the immediacy of that adrenal response. And then on the other side, that feeds your mind body, right? That feeds in those emotions will trickle in to your, to your consciousness, to to your physical somatic body, to your, to your neurosystem, right? There's the fast river that's of the self-protection and there's the slow river. That's our grief, meaning-making ability, right? The meaning-making river right? And sometimes when both of those rivers are flowing strongly, right? When we're feeling that that fast flash of anger, but we're also feeling the deeper grief of the world, not being the way we need it to be the deeper grief of being hurt yet again, the deeper trauma, the deeper sadness of, of all the things we long for that aren't, that aren't here, all the ways we need support that aren't present. When those are flowing at the same time, it's really confusing because it's hard to parse, which is, which, what we're feeling, what we're experiencing. I myself have, have had a lifelong struggle with feelings and emotions and understanding what I feel when I feel. And, and this is not to blame anyone in my past, but I was raised with this idea that some feelings are just not correct, <laughs> that we're just not allowed to have them and we're supposed to suppress them and, and they're supposed to just go away magically on their own. And that's caused a lot of damage in me. So I've tried to develop a model that would be helpful to others who maybe have been taught similar things. Oh, I love that. It's so important because there's also something that I call, there's a difference between emotions and feelings. Your mm. emotions are something that's our subconscious potentially that are just coming out. Feelings are your conscious understanding of those emotions. So I, I do like that two rivers um, concept too, because you're really dealing with the frontal lobe and the, the amygdala, right? So you're going yeah. to fight and flight response. Yeah. You're in that conflict. So I really, as you said, I'm one of those psychologists that like that analogy because how do we come to terms with this and separate those two rivers, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. And, and for me, developing that understanding has helped me develop a much greater sense of empathy because if I see someone react in the short term and have this explosive reaction to something small, you know, like say, say you're, you're in the parking lot and like a shopping cart hits their car and they just explode. Well, I can sit there and, and judge them for that reaction. Or I can say, you know what? They might be just lost in the slow river. They might just be, they might just be having so many experiences that I'm not even aware of that I can't see under the surface, right? Mm-hmm. That might've been the 15th horrible thing that happened, but it was enough to just tip them over the edge, right? So it makes human behavior make a little bit more sense, I think. It gives you that understanding so that you can be empathic, yeah. so that you can show empathy so that yeah. you can grasp and not be reactive, 
but maybe more proactive about the situation that's going on so that you have a better understanding of, okay, I don't need to get escalated. Stay down, understand, see how we can work on this situation or issue where we can get to the top of that mountain. Yes. Right? Yes. So, absolutely. Right. My next phrase was going to be, hey, you're having a TEDx soon. Will you be doing that in June? I'm doing two, uh, which is so exciting. I'm doing two. I'm doing one at the end of April for Heritage Green, South Carolina on domination and anti-oppression. And then in June for Santa Barbara TEDx, I'll be doing a longer interview style on resilient relationships and conflict transformation, more the wider scope of my book. So I am the luckiest girl in the world. I'm, I'm flying high. I just, uh, just got accepted uh, within the last couple of weeks. So I'm still writing Still riding that wave of excitement. Woo! Congratulations. Thank you. Wow. Two TEDx talks. That's incredible. Thank you. As we come to the close of the interview, I ask most of my guests, if you were to leave the listeners with some words of wisdom, what would they be? This is a wonderful question. You let me know you're going to ask this question. I've been thinking about this whole conversation. (laughs) (laughs) You know. I like to yes. have, you know, get people prepared. It's good. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> I want to speak specifically to the people who feel hopeless in this topic, who have experienced years of conflict and, and feel like there's no end to it because I've been there and I understand what that feels like, feeling like the relationship can never be healthy or that thing that you, you've been thinking about this entire conversation. I want to speak to you and I, I want you to know that It's okay to grieve that. It's okay to be sad about it. It's okay to be frustrated if someone won't collaborate with you and grow with you. It's okay. I also want to say that you're not, maybe, perhaps, maybe you've tried everything. But what I want to offer you is that you're probably not as stuck as you might feel that you are. A lot of our approaches to conflicts, the ways we've learned to cope, the ways we've learned to deal with these things are learned behaviors. We learn them from the time we're born, through modeling, through media, through our social location, through our education, we learn these things, right? And if they're learned, the hope for me that I cling to as a classic avoider of conflict, ironically, someone who wrote a book about this, classic avoider, I was raised with the idea that there's something bad happened, you just pretend like nothing happened and you just walk away and it'll be fine. (laughs) Classic avoider. If these skills are learned, they can be unlearned. We can learn different skills. We're not stuck. There is hope. And we can't control other people. This is a classic adage. I'm sure you've heard it. We can't control other people, but we can't control ourselves. We can create better habits and patterns for ourselves. And that's what keeps me going. Thank you so much, Melody, for joining me today on the Core Women podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Summer. This is an amazing project. You're awesome. And I wish you well with with, uh, your continued work. Thank you. If you'd like to connect with Melody Stanford Martin, you can reach her on LinkedIn, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can find her book, Brave Talk, Building Resilient Relationships in the Face of Conflict at most online retailers to include Amazon. You can also reach her at bravetalkproject.com. If you need a strategic empowerment coach, contact me. If you want to tell your story of empowerment or how you have reconstructed your life to drive change, send me a video or an email of your story providing permission to use it on my social media platforms. 
If you want to be featured on my podcast, reach out to me at info at corewomen.com. I want to hear from you and to get to know you. You are now part of the Core Women Home. Let's get to know each other. Let's learn from one another. Please follow Core Women on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please let your women friends know about this podcast. If you write about Core Women in your social media posts, please hashtag Core Women. This is all about women. Thank you for taking the time to learn more about Core Women, and please stay tuned for continued growth of the Core Women movement. Let's grow and drive change together.